0: The COVID-19 pandemic has changed how we all live our lives, both in the present and the future. We've all been stuck in our homes and adopting the telework techniques in order to reduce as much time as possible with other people that may be sick. However, with these changes, we've noticed some positive impacts to the environment too, including animals flocking to places they don't normally go, and improved air quality in major cities. Today we've brought in Dr. Ryan Stoffer from NASA to discuss how this quarantine has impacted our current pollution output and how it is modeled out into the future. Ryan, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Sure, thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, Ryan and I just uh, found out that we, you know, we've known this, but we have a commonality in that during my time at NASA Goddard, we both played for the same. Goddard softball team. So shout out to any Sun Dogs out there or Dogs alumni that may be listening. Let me give you a little background on Dr. Ryan Stauffer. He's a visiting assistant research scientist in the Earth System Science Interdisciplinary Center at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, he previously was a NASA postdoctoral program fellow working to analyze long-term historical records of ozone-sign profile data, and we might get you to ask uh, explain what that is later. He His research focuses on ozone profile Files, meteorology and near-surface pollution. So you may have seen this. We, I really wanted to deal with this issue. Um, there's been a lot of discussion out there about how uh, the lack of anthropogenic or human activity, things being shut down, people not going to work has reduced uh, pollution and, and improved air quality. So finding a silver lining in this otherwise dark cloud, if you will, that is coronavirus. Before we get into that, however, Ryan, there's a Common question I, I always ask every Weather Geeks guest, how did you get into the science that you're currently doing? Have you always been sort of interested in this type of thing? Or are you a Weather Geek? Tell us about what got you into all of this.
1: Uh, yes, total Weather Geek, fully it. So uh, my degrees are in meteorology, um, but as I went into graduate school, that's how I got into air pollution and air chemistry. Where'd you go to sort for thing? your meteorology degree? So my undergrad was at Millersville University. It's a oh, Pennsylvania yeah. State School. Shout
0: out to Millersville, yes.
1: Shout out to Millersville. It's uh, near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I did my undergrad in meteorology there. And then I moved on to graduate school at Penn State, where I did my master's and my PhD. But I would say my fascination with the weather um, 100% comes from snowstorms. So I also grew up in South Central Pennsylvania. And the the big event, the one that really struck a nerve with me was probably the blizzard of 96. So I was seven years old then. Uh, We got two feet of snow. And from that moment on, I kind of figured, oh, hey, maybe I could do this for a career. Maybe this is what I want to do the rest of my life. So from that moment on, actually, um, as I was a kid growing up, kind of formed my own little weather center where essentially all we just did was regurgitate uh, weather channel forecasts. Uh, We would watch the local on the eights, as quickly as possible while I flashed up on the screen, right, the high and low temperatures and the weather conditions, and then report that to the to the neighborhood. This was me and two other friends at the time. So sorry, Weather Channel, for uh, repackaging your forecast, <laughs> but it was with good intentions. Well, uh, you come but
0: now that you're on a Weathercast, uh, Weather Channel podcast, so that's
1: awesome. That's right. It's full circle now. Yeah, uh, but it was definitely snowstorms. So the blizzard of 96, uh, but then flash forward, Fourteen years to the winter of two thousand nine two thousand and ten uh, as I was a senior in undergrad at Millersville University, that was the craziest winter I have ever experienced, and probably will be the craziest that I will ever experience when we got three snowstorms of more than a foot in five days. we got almost four feet of snow if you're in the d c area you, you know this as um, Snow Magadn or snowverkill, I think they called it <laughs> That's right. but um it was, I mean, I take that as a sign or affirmation that I made the right call. You have these huge snow events that kind of bookend what started my fascination with meteorology and then finishing up as I, as I got my undergrad degree with these major snow events. So that, that's my story. I'm sure there are many similar ones like that, whether it's snowstorms or hurricanes or tornadoes or something. A lot of people, I think, can identify a singular event that really kick started um, their yeah, life.
0: Absolutely. I think that's been a common thread or theme among our guests. There's usually some type of an event or experience that got them into this. I really like your story because you're you're like reasonology, but your, your areas of research and sort of what your career. This now shows that you can kind of go off into some other areas and really kind of do some different things along the same lines or but are related, but not necessarily just forecasting or the types of things that many people associate with numerology. So for example, sure. yeah, you know, I know you were involved in some field projects called shadows and scope. And I want to talk all about those. But just in general, talk about what your daily work is like as a NASA research scientist working with ozone, ozone sondes. And first of all, explain to us what those are.
1: Okay. So, you know that weather services around the world launch weather balloons. They attach to the weather balloon a radio sond that measures the profile of temperature, humidity, and pressure. Essentially, what we do is we attach what's called an ozone sond to that radio sond, and we send it up on a weather balloon. So um, it's it's kind of like a value-added weather balloon launch. Um so this this ozone sonde, it's actually a pretty old technology, it's more than 50 years old. Been launching them in some sites in Europe, Canada, and the US for for decades since the 1960s. But essentially it just pumps in air into a cell where there's a chemical reaction, and you can measure the amount of ozone. So we can measure from the surface to about 30 kilometers altitude or 20 miles up in the atmosphere, the entire profile of ozone. So we capture. Near-surface ozone pollution, and we can measure all the way up through the ozone layer in the stratosphere. So we like to say ozone's good up high, where it protects us from UV radiation, bad nearby, where it's actually a harmful pollutant. Um, So we can measure the entire profile and get a a full snapshot uh, of what ozone looks like throughout the atmosphere. So that's done at a few dozen sites around the globe. And shadows in particular, which stands for Southern Hemisphere Additional Ozone Sondes, Ah, uh, principal investigator is actually my old Penn State advisor, Dr. Ann Thompson, who I still work with um, at NASA Goddard now. So she's the PI, and this is a network of about a dozen tropical stations that launch these ozone sondes on weather balloons about once a week. So um, the the reason that NASA is involved in this work is, of course, NASA is in the business of putting stuff into space. So we measure ozone and and ozone profiles from from satellites. Um, But the the weather balloon based ozone sonds have a much higher resolution, much more accurate measurement. So we can validate the satellite measurements using that the ground based balloon launches. So that's why NASA is involved in, in a lot of this ground based work that I actually do.
0: Yeah, I want to sort of send a big hello to Dr. Ann Thompson, former colleague of mine during my days at NASA Goddard as well. I had forgotten that she was at Penn State, so it's really neat to see the connection. Uh, Before we talk about sort of coronavirus, COVID-19, and reduced air pollution, tell us a little bit about the SCOPE project that you were involved with.
1: So this was the project um, that was born out of an interagency agreement between uh, Department of Interior Agency called the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Um, we like to describe them as the EPA of the seas. So it was an agreement between them and NASA for us to go out on the water in the Gulf of Mexico about a year ago, actually. We, a year ago today, we were finishing up. So we went on a boat with a bunch of air quality instrumentation. We were measuring surface ozone, NO2, carbon monoxide. Methane carbon dioxide among other things and we were also launching these ozone sondes off the back of the ship So we were sailing amongst some of the deep water oil platforms um, And just kind of scoping out as we say um, Their impact on air quality um, because we're interested to see if offshore drilling operations do impact Coastal air quality and where people are actually living. So we did that for about a week last year um, and part of the the mission was to also validate Satellite measurements, because we had ground-based spectrometers um, instruments that are looking directly at the sun, which measure, among other things, um, the amount of nitrogen dioxide or NO two, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later, um, and also the total amount of ozone in the atmosphere, which also helps to set valid- validate satellite instruments. So a lot of the projects we do again goes back to this validation of the satellite measurements. Um, but also to measure what we'll call nose-level nose, nose level air quality, you know, the pollutants that we're actually breathing at the surface, which satellites often struggle to see from space.
0: And, and that, that leads me to the sort of topic du jour, because we wanted to talk to you, because I know I, I wrote about this in Forbes, and I saw all kinds of headlines uh, as we've all been sort of slogging through this experience of... Uh, uh, quarantining or staying at home, if you will, because of coronavirus, which has meant that less people are going to work, there's 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 less traffic on interstate highways, uh, less sort of industrial activity. And so there were all of these headlines in the last several weeks to months that, oh, wow, NASA satellite data and European satellite data is showing evidence of reduced air quality or reduced air pollution, I should say, and improved air quality can you kind of give us the 101 on that are we indeed seeing a reduction in air pollution as a result of the the reductions in activity and traffic and so forth or are there some caveats that we need to keep in mind or both
1: i would say both um i think there's no doubt about it that the air is cleaner um but of course Um, The actual measurements from satellites are highly dependent on the weather day-to-day, which is why we take monthly averages to look at how much pollution has dropped. The NO2, for example, over the Northeast U.S. in March 2020 dropped by 30% before you
0: kind of go, I want to let you repeat that. I apologize. It's a little hard. We're not seeing each other, so I apologize to the listeners. It seems like occasionally we talk over each other. We're trying something different here to tape these during, since we can't go into the studio, but you have mentioned NO2 a couple of times, but define what NO2 is for the listeners and then then continue on with what you're saying.
1: Sure. So NO2 is nitrogen dioxide. Uh, The vast majority of NO2 in the lower atmosphere near the surface comes from the burning of fossil fuels. So when you're burning gasoline in your car or truck engine or power plants that are generating electricity, you're burning coal or fossil fuels, that's where the NO2 comes from. So when you look at a map of NO2, you can see cities where there are high amounts of traffic, and you can actually also pick out power plants from some of these maps of nitrogen dioxide. So the vast majority of NO2 in the atmosphere, in the lower atmosphere especially, Comes from burning of fossil fuels. So it's a a pollutant. It's a short-lived pollutant Um, And it also contributes to to other sources of pollution including particulate matter And and ozone actually as well So we've seen um, I'll reference interstate 95 in maryland in particular car traffic dropped by about 50 percent Once the stay-at-home orders went into effect Um, Large trucks had a much smaller drop Um, so it would make sense with many, many less cars traveling on the roads, that NO2, which comes straight out of the tailpipe of your car, would also decrease. And so over the Northeast U.S. in particular, in March 2020, compared to 2015 to 2019, we saw a reduction in NO2 as measured from satellite, drop by 30%, which is an unprecedented drop. And we've seen this in other places of the U.S. as well. Florida, down 30%. Uh, Other parts of the southeast U.S. down 40 percent, Los Angeles down 30 percent, and even some larger reductions that we've seen um, in China, sometimes as much as 50 percent. So these are significant significant drops in the NO2 amount as measured from space. So go ahead. And I was going to say that really illustrates the value
0: of satellite data because you can look at many places around the world uh, simultaneously or rather than having to depend on having special instruments out for a field campaign or for uh, whatnot, the satellite data. And I, I know you're using both NASA and other
1: uh, assets, perhaps even from the Europeans and others to sort of track the global
0: amounts. Is that
1: correct? That's, that's right. You know, the good thing about having these satellites in orbit is that they, every day they give us a picture of the entire globe, of what NO2 looks like. There are networks of ground-based monitors, but of course, they're spatially limited. They're somewhat scattered and they're somewhat targeted towards cities, for example, that might have pollution problems. But um, the entire global picture from satellite data uh, really gives us a, a unique view of how NO2 levels are changing day to day, month to month, and even year to year. One of the instruments that we're using is called the OMI instrument. It's called uh, the ozone monitoring instrument and it's on NASA's Aura satellite. Um, And it's actually been in orbit since October of 2014. So we have over 16 years of data to put into context just how significant of a drop this 30 or 40% reduction in NO2 is. The long-term trend over the past decade or so in the US, Europe, and China is also down. But this really is a step change that we've seen with stay-at-home orders in terms of the NO2 pollution that we're measuring from satellite. And I've seen, I just saw
0: recently this week as we're taping this, I know carbon emissions are down as well. Um, do you think, and by the way, we're talking with Dr. Ryan Stoffer from NASA about covid 19s impact on air pollution. Do you Do you think that this is something that's sustainable or when things start to normalize as we kind of get over the peaks in this uh, pandemic, things are going to kind of just sort of jump step, stepwise jump right back to what we've seen prior to COVID-19?
1: Yeah, so this is definitely a temporary reduction in pollution. We're expecting uh, air pollution levels to go right back to how they were essentially before the stay-at-home orders once everything quote-unquote goes back to normal. Um, so we have seen this this reduction in NO2 and some other pollutants, um, but but it's not a sustainable way to, to reduce air pollution. Um, it comes at a very high economic cost. Um, NO2 measurements from satellites, there have been papers published showing that you can use NO2 levels as an indicator of economic activity in the short term. A- and this big drop-off that we're seeing in the measurements from satellites indicate uh, a very significant economic impact globally essentially. Um, so, so I don't believe it's really sustainable. They, we've shown in the past, again, I mentioned the long-term trend in NO2 and many other pollutants is down. Uh, we've shown that we can have air quality improvements simultaneous with a healthy, strong, growing economy. And that's the, the model to follow for the future. But um, a, a pandemic-caused uh, improvement in air quality is, is not at all sustainable.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Ryan Stauffer from NASA. We're talking about the air pollution impacts of coronavirus. I mean, I think we've seen some cleansing of the air, if you will, uh, because of the reduction in human activity. You know, and we were just talking with Dr. Stoffer about this, and I, I agree with him. This is certainly not sustainable. It's probably going to just jump right back to normal when we start normalizing our activities. However, one thing, and I want your thoughts on this too, Ryan. One thing I think this has done, because as a climate scientist myself, I often have people that will tweet me or talk to me, and I, I just don't believe human beings can impact the climate system or the atmosphere or, or the weather. I think this has shown people, at least, that there is a direct influence of human activity on aspects of our atmosphere, whether in this case it be air pollution and air pollution. What are your thoughts there?
1: You know, this really is a grand unintended experiment in atmospheric chemistry and climate. Um, right immediately as the, the stay-at-home orders occurred in the United States, as the lockdowns happened in China, um, we could almost see it immediately that, that there was a reduction, especially in NO2, because NO2 is a fairly short-lived pollutant. It doesn't usually last more than a day in the atmosphere. So when the emissions shut down, usually it's a fairly quick response to see that the NO2 has decreased. Um, and you were talking about CO2. Well, carbon dioxide is a, a co-emitted pollutant with NO2. They typically have the same sources. The, the main difference is that CO2 lasts much, much longer in the atmosphere hundreds of years or more, so it's a little bit more difficult to see immediately the impacts of CO2 emissions uh, compared to the NO2 emissions, um, although I have seen um, the, uh, I think it was a Nature Climate Change article that said that CO2 emissions drop by as much as 17 percent, um, so that also was noticed fairly quickly, even though CO2 is a much longer-lived pollutant, so it's quite obvious, even in the short term, that we have a significant impact, not just on Short-term pollutants and air quality, but also on climate, climate gases such as CO2, among other things. So um, we're learning a lot from this unintended e- experiment. I think.
0: Yeah, the, this this uh, takes me back to the 9/11 days. There was another unintended experiment when all of the uh, airplanes were grounded. And so you didn't have any contrails, those, those uh, clouds produced by the uh, exhaust from airplanes. And so I remember, uh, I believe there's a guy named uh, Professor Travis, uh, actually, who started doing some research uh, in that sort of window of opportunity on uh, on the Earth's radiation budget and, and the impacts of contrails or lack thereof on sort of energy in, into our system. So um, I appreciate the fact that uh, you as scientists that we're able to kind of take advantage of this unfortunate situation to at least help us learn some things. I want to kind of, this is weather geeks, Ryan. We, We get into the weeds. We can kind of geek out a little bit. Let's just kind of for the listeners, because I know a lot of our listeners are very curious and they know a lot about weather or fascinated by weather, may not know as much about air pollution and air quality. So I'm going to give you a couple of rapid fire questions here, Ryan. I, I think they're questions you'll be able to handle, but to help the help the listener. First of all, So just a, just short answer rapid fire here. First of all, how do you define? How would you define
1: to a congressman what air pollution is? Um, so I would say. Um, it's, it's any atmospheric molecule that can either affect visibility, can affect vegetation, or can affect human health.
0: Right. What about air quality? Now, you often hear the terms used interchangeably and perhaps are within the same sort of discussion. They're a little bit different. What is air quality?
1: Uh, I would say air quality is a, a moving scale of how bad air pollution is. Right. So um, essentially, is air, qual- is air pollution high? Then air quality is bad. And it's a moving scale. Essentially,
0: and i and i know back in the 70s back during the nixon administration we we had i think the first series of clean air acts we had the clean air act of 1970s or so 70 i believe or so and then uh, some Clean Air Act amendments in the 90, 1990-ish range, I think. And these set standards for, for certain things, as I recall, particulate matter and some certain other pollutants. And so I know the EBA, the, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, I believe is sort of, um, it, it holds certain jurisdictions, cities and so forth to certain standards about how much of these pollutants can be emitted, if you will, Um, I know in one of my intro weather and climate classes at University of Georgia I was talking about primary pollutants Which is stuff coming directly out of the tailpipe or the smokestack And then what we call secondary pollutants Which I guess ozone is an example I think people understand ozone in the stratosphere and And it's there to protect us from ultraviolet radiation But can you talk about this idea of ozone And how and
1: why it forms at the surface? Sure, so you're correct Ozone is a secondary pollutant Um, It's it's harmful to human health because when you breathe it it irritates your lungs and your respiratory system and it also damages crops Um, So ozone is formed from three ingredients at the surface You need NOx emissions, which is NO plus NO2 and you need VOC emissions which are volatile organic compounds, which have both natural and human uh, Emission sources and then you need sunlight. So it's this mixture uh, of primary pollutants and sunlight that, that then forms ozone. So because it takes these ingredients um, and sunlight to, to actually form surface ozone pollution, um, a lot of times you'll find that within actual cities where emissions tend to be the highest, that's not actually where your serious ozone pollution problems are. So for example, in California, downtown Los Angeles does not have the worst ozone pollution problem. That actually occurs downwind near San Bernardino, California. They have some of the worst ozone pollution in the country. In the Northeast, New York City is not the ozone pollution problem. That occurs downwind near the Long Island Sound in coastal Connecticut. So when we put into context ozone changes against the NO2 changes, it's a little bit of a complicated story. Um, It's not as simple as, well, NO2 goes down, ozone goes down. Um, It's... affected by what we call nonlinear chemistry. So, so the mix and the ingredients and the formation of ozone, it's fairly complicated, um, but but it requires a couple of different ingredients to come together and then form as a secondary pollutant, essentially.
0: Yep, yep. And it depends a lot on weather. Oh, absolutely. It does. I mean, I, we often talk about sort of the the weather, whether you've got a high pressure system in place that's sort of making the air sink, uh, we've got windy conditions, all of these things, there are a lot of weather related factors and and that was actually one of the things, interestingly enough, when we were talking about this pollution reduction as it relates to COVID-19, because I know that even rainfall, I study rainfall as a research uh, topic, um, in the weather and rainfall, there's something called wet deposition where that rainfall helps to scavenge out pollutants as well and so have to be a little bit careful, but Is this this correct, Ryan, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the techniques that you're using to measure uh, NO2, for example, and other things, they can only
1: be done in cloud-free environments. Is that right? That's correct. Um, The satellite pixel for NO2 when it makes a measurement has to be less than 30% cloud covered. So you need almost totally clear skies to make a proper NO2 measurement. Um, You know, I mentioned and you also mentioned that that weather really affects ozone. Well, weather weather really affects NO2 as well Um, So if you have for example a very stagnant day, you can build up NO2 um, And say the next day a cold front sweeps through and and blows out all that NO2 Those two consecutive days could look very different in terms of their actual no two measurements Even though emissions might have stayed the same. So there's this really close connection between air pollution and meteorology that has to be considered when you're trying to say, well, you know, the stay-at-home orders for COVID-19 have cleaned up the air by this percent. Meteorology is always a factor in air pollution. You you
0: mentioned something in the conversation, and I'm talking with Dr. Ryan Stauffer from NASA. You mentioned something earlier about NO2 coming out of the tailpipe and out of the cars, and CO2 for that matter. I guess, and I I think you alluded to this, but I wanna dig a little deeper here. Is there a notable difference? In other words, when I'm looking at these NASA issued maps or even the European Space Agency maps of NOx or NO2, I mean, how much from a sort of car emissions
1: versus industry emissions, or is most of it from cars? Um, I I think a lot of it is from cars. you know, as we've cleaned up our light duty vehicles, I think it's becoming less and less of a contribution of NO2 to the entire budget. Um, I mentioned that while car traffic went down in Maryland, truck traffic wasn't changed all that much. Um, so even though we had a car traffic reduction of 50%, again, we're saying the levels of NO2 in the Northeast re- decreased by about 30%. So that indicates that that light duty vehicles, small cars are not not the, made, not the biggest contributor, I would say. Um, power generation, um, there are still some coal power plants that are burning. Um, those, are, those are the big individual single-site emitters, I think, in, in this larger picture. So electric, electricity generation has been down a few percent, um, but it's not nearly as big of a decline as, as the car traffic, for example.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with uh, Ryan Stoffer from NASA. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And we're talking about the ways that COVID-19 and reduced activity of all of us has affected air quality. Have there been any other changes beyond, I mean, we talked about carbon uh, the dioxide. Uh, have there been any other sort of changes that you've anecdotally heard about related to the atmosphere, uh, Ryan, as as it relates to the reduced activity in COVID-19? I, I know there's a former student of ours at the University of Georgia, Paul Miller. Shout out to Paul Miller out there. That's, I know he's doing some research and received a, some grant money from NSF to look at changes and possible changes in cloud and precipitation processes. Are you aware of anything you know, with your ear to the ground there at NASA, other changes that people are looking at?
1: Well, um We've seen some reductions in in particulate matter, and aerosols in particulate matter affect visibility, and we've seen a lot of pictures um, from India, Uh, we've seen the skyline clearly in Los Angeles. Um, So I I think some people are noticing that there's been a visibility improvement in addition to this reduction in air pollution. Um, So that's a big one. People seeing mountains for the first time, really, in, in downtown L.A. Right, yeah, I've seen some of those images. And by the way,
0: particulate matter, um, PM 2.5, PM 10 are typically some of the things that you'll often hear if you go to the EPA website. By the way, there's a good EPA network out there called the EPA Air Now uh, site. If you want to just go around, go play around with some particulate matter data out there, they've got these sites all over the U.S. and and, uh, territories uh, monitoring particulate matter. So if you're just kind of curious about what's going on. I want to shift a little bit, uh, Ryan, now, before all of this, what, what, what occupies your time? What, what's, your, what's your research uh, agenda right now? What, 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 what are you working
1: on now and in the next couple of
0: years in terms of your own personal research?
1: So I, I do a lot of work with the Shadows Ozone sound Network that we mentioned at the beginning of the interview. Um, I, I do a lot of technical work, data quality assurance work with that. Um, so, for example, um, we take these ozone sun instruments and we have laboratory campaigns. Um, there's a there's a chamber in Ulic Germany, that actually can simulate ozone pressure and temperature as if you're actually launching the balloon in the atmosphere, but it's a pressure chamber in a lab. So we do experiments with these ozone sound instruments and compare it to a, a reference ozone measurement to try to get the highest possible accuracy um, out of these ozone sound instruments. And we learn all the technical details and and we refine our measurements of these balloon-borne ozone sondes so that we can provide the best data to validate the satellites. So a lot of my work focuses on um, the technical issues that we find with these ozone sond instruments. But in addition to that, um, we occasionally go on these air quality measurement campaigns that are NASA sponsored or or funded by, for example, that Department of Interior agency to go out on the water in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, So mixed in with this... This technical work I do with with ozone data, um, we still do measure air quality um, at the surface in in these various NASA-sponsored campaigns.
0: We'll get ready to wrap up here, but I want to pick your brain here. Uh, What are some environmentally friendly tips or recommendations that we can take from us after the quarantine? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, As individuals, or perhaps even if policymakers are listening to this, I mean, is there anything we should take from all of this going forward once we normalize?
1: Well, I think it's been really interesting seeing the traffic reductions, Um, and that's still possible, I believe, in in some cities, at least, after all these stay-at-home orders are lifted, if public transportation is utilized more. So instead of having a couple dozen cars on the road all emitting, um, you can have one bus, for example, or one train. Um, and, and that seems to already have had a, a decent impact um, from just what we're seeing with the stay-at-home orders and the reduction of pollution right now with the much lower amount of cars on, on the road. Um, that's probably the most accessible option to the individual, I would say. Um, try to reduce car traffic. And it'll be interesting, I think, to see how the whole mentality toward telework changes um, because right now you have millions of people across the U.S. working in the their new home office. Um, I, for example, I'm on week 10 of telework right now. Um, so um, we'll see if, if we see a longer-term reduction in traffic as, as more people telework, and maybe that will have some long-term air quality improvements. But I think we've yet to see what actually will happen in the future.
0: Yeah, I, I, I know from my, my own, I, I wasn't a big person who ordered things online, like goods and services, but I know that I've done that more during this sort of stay at home period too so it prevents me from having to run to a grocery store or run to the mall so perhaps there might be some habit changes and pattern changes there that could help with reductions as well
1: yeah yeah i think so Um, i I would imagine that there will be more people teleworking um for the foreseeable future Um, and i'm sure there will be many studies in the future just quantifying the impact of, of how that has changed air pollution But the immediate answer that we know for sure right now is that by cutting the cars on the highways in half, um, that has really helped contribute to an unprecedented drop in in air pollution in the northeast U.S. especially.
0: All right. I I really this is a question that literally just came to my mind. And since you're a NASA expert in this area, I want to ask you, you've mentioned things like the the Aura satellite mission and, and some others. Um, what is next for, is it sort of the zero to five to ten year time frame for NASA or, uh, in terms of uh, air quality or air pollution measurement from space because we can measure a lot of different things from space that rec- uh, represent air pollution and air quality so
1: what 's sort of on the horizon for NASA in that realm sure so the, the measurements that we 're talking about right now come from polar orbiting satellites, so they visit a location uh, once once a day essentially. the next generation of satellites. And there's one actually in the air currently in space, Uh, it's geostationary air air quality measurements. So there are three different satellites that will form a constellation. Currently, there's the GEMS instrument, which is looking over Southeast Asia and Korea uh, that was launched a couple months ago. Um, The Europeans will be launching a satellite called Sentinel-4 to look at Europe from geostationary orbit. And over the US and North America, we will have the TEMPO instrument, which I believe is due to launch in either 2022 or 2023, and we're going to be getting, instead of once-a-day measurements of air quality, that's NO2 or ozone or, or other constituents, we're we'll getting hourly measurements. So this will be a total game changer in terms of satellite measurements of air quality. For every day to get multiple measurements a day, every hour across the United States, it will be a huge leap, I think, in our understanding of how pollution levels change Throughout the day, instead of getting, you know, essentially one measurement a day in the middle of the day. So uh, really looking forward to that. And we're looking forward to the first results from the GEMS instrument over Asia and Korea. So hopefully sometime soon. Yeah, that, that's a real, that is a real game changer. And when those get up there, I'm going to have to
0: update my satellite meteorology class at the University of Georgia. We talk a little bit about air quality and the measurements from space, but the geo, When we can get these observations from geosynchronous platform. I, I work in rainfall. And right now, I, I, for example, the GPM mission is a constellation of low earth orbiters. It'd be lovely to have a precipitation measuring instrument at geosynchronous orbit. It's a little bit different uh, engineering challenge with some of the power and weight requirements. So we haven't quite figured it out technologically yet. But yeah, the geostationary orbit is a game game changer in terms of uh, many of these Earth measurements that we make. Ryan, where can people find out more about what you're up to on the web or on social media?
1: Um, so I'll give a plug to our NASA OMI NO2 team. They have a very nice website where you can find some of the imagery that we've been talking about today that's at airquality.gsfc.nasa.gov and they can find all the imagery that we've released and uh, a lot of write-ups and ex- explanations and caveats um, to go a little bit deeper into what we've talked about here today um, and you can also follow me on Twitter. Which, what's your Twitter? Uh, I think my Twitter I- is uh, it's Ryan's underscore w x so r y a n s underscore w x okay, so you can find me on there that's where i post all of my air quality musings um and um yeah other ground-based air quality measurements that i'm really interested in very
0: good well we have to end it there but before i do it's that the podcast is the geek of the week. where We're a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Trisha Barrett. She holds a day job as a business analyst, but her favorite job is being a skywarn spotter in the Austin, Texas area. She observes and documents storms, which are very frequent this time of year in the Southern Plains. She also educates others in her community about weather so they can become weather geeks, too. If you or someone you know is a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media page. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: Happy to be here. Great talking with you.
0: Uh, This is Dr. Marshall Shepard. And bear with us again. We're we're trying something different here in the COVID-19 era where we're trying to do these podcasts via Zoom. Within sometimes we're not always seeing each other on each end of this conserved bandwidth. And so um, we're still working out the kinks in this. Thanks for sticking with us so we can bring you these engaging Weather Geeks podcasts. And so uh, again, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from University of Georgia. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.